The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who trust in him shall be condemned. Therefore, he is able to save us to the uttermost, or save to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection from the de- to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation uh, waiting for its to be revealed in the last time. Before we open God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have this opportunity to just be refreshed by your word, to come to understand how you have provided various spiritual skills for us in this life so that we do not have to always yield to the pressures and the temptations of either the world or the flesh or the devil, but that we might rely upon you, upon your word, upon what you have provided for us, trusting in you, uh, internalizing your word, that that becomes our default go-to whenever we face challenges. And though we fail sometimes many, many times, Your grace is always sufficient for us. Your forgiveness is always there. And that we are to continue to press on to the high calling for which Christ has laid hold of us. So, Father, we pray that today as we continue our study of these spiritual skills, that we will be encouraged, strengthened, reminded, and challenged to think about the challenges of our lives in terms of your solutions. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are studying now for the last several lessons before I went off to Israel on the spiritual skills, and we are on the second to last one. But one of the interesting things is how many passages that we go to, and think about it, because we'll go through two or three uh, today as we sort of finish up occupation with Christ and then began to shift towards uh, the last uh, the last of the spiritual skills, which is sharing the happiness of God or uh, sharing God's joy, uh, inner happiness, inner stability. These are just some of the various ways in which the final one is is uh, described in Scripture. But what we see is that even though I use this diagram here where we have this broken down into something that depicts like a flow chart or a blueprint, we all know that a blueprint is just a schematic of a building or a house, but the building of the house and the application of the construction principles, whether it involves the plumbing or whether it involves the electricity or the carpentry, that these are something that are dynamic and they are not they do not represent some kind of rigid uh, process and I say that because there are people who think and I've heard people say this that well 
I'm just really still working on confession of sin and trying to figure out how to walk by the Spirit. So it's going to be a long time before I get to where I'm exercising a personal love for God or impersonal or unconditional love for others. That's a wrong way to look at it. It's dynamic. It's fluid. We don't live lives and are built houses uh, in a in a according to a flow chart of this type. And so these things are all interconnected and interdependent and and in many ways fluid, so that we're going to look at a number of these passages related to living for Christ, occupation with Christ, and realize they talk about joy as well. They talk about loving, loving God the Father as well. They talk about obedience, which is doctrinal orientation. So these things all mix and blend together because the spiritual life and spiritual growth is a dynamic process. So we go through those foundational uh, skills that I talk about frequently, faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. Basically, we have to know the scriptures. What, what goes through all three of these is a foundation in the Word of God. We have to know the Word of God and eternalize the Word of God so that we know the promises of God so that we can claim and rely on the promises of God when we face challenges. And it is the Word of God that teaches us about His grace, what that means, that God's grace towards us is His unconditional favor toward us that is not based on our works, it's not based on our personality, it's not based on anything attractive in us because uh, we were born sinners and there was nothing attractive in us, that God loved us for his own sake based on his own character. That's grace orientation. Doctrinal orientation means that we have to understand how what Scripture teaches us to do, how it teaches us to think, how it teaches us to act, how it teaches us to speak and to talk. And we'll see many of these commands as we get back into our passage starting in Ephesians 4, uh, 25 and following in the, in the coming weeks. And as we get a handle on these basic skills, we come to understand that God's plan for our life doesn't end with our physical death when we are face-to-face with the Lord, but that, in fact, he has a future destiny for all of us. And that destiny involves our role as church-age believers in the future coming messianic kingdom that we will rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that rulership, those reigning responsibilities are based on the capacities that you and I develop in this life. It's sort of like when you go into the military and you go to boot camp, uh, how well you do in different areas in boot camp affects what you're going to do when you go advance on into your military career. The same thing is true here. What happens in this life is going to impact our roles, our responsibilities serving the Lord when we are advanced into the uh, future kingdom. So that's our eternal destiny. As we advance, we grow in our capacity for love. Our capacity of love for God comes from faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, and we come to understand who God is and what he has provided for us. That doesn't mean that a one-week-old baby believer cannot love God just as a one-year-old child loves his parents. But it's not nearly the same as the kind of love you develop as a mature, advancing uh, believer.
And so you develop all of these things all along as we take in the Word of God and as we grow and we depend upon Him. So we have personal love for God, our biblical love for all, uh, and Christian love for other believers. Remember in the Old Testament, as I taught this in Leviticus uh, 19.18, what we have is the command to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So the command is directed towards anyone who's in our periphery, whether they're a believer or not. And the pattern is as we love ourselves because we're basically born self-lovers. And so we have to learn to put others first. And a Christian love is for others in the body of Christ. And the pattern is the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. And there's no way that any of us apart from God the Holy Spirit, can accomplish that. The love for one another is part of the fruit, the production, the character transformation that comes from walking by uh, by the Holy Spirit. And then we have our occupation with Christ, that we're learning to live for the Lord. We don't live our lives for what we want to get out of life, for the things we want to do, the things we want to accomplish. There's nothing wrong with accomplishing things, doing things, having hobbies and, and other interests in life. But our, we come to understand that God placed us here for a purpose, and that is to serve him in many different ways. And God, at salvation, that the Holy Spirit placed us into the body of Christ, gave us spiritual endowments to enable us to serve the Lord within the body of Christ. And so we are to, as we grow in these capacities, that enhances our ability to serve the Lord. And as those three work together, it produces a contentment, a joy that is ours, that is not based on circumstances. It's not based on emotion. It's not based on the approval of people or the disapproval of people. It is based upon that orientation to the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. So just by way of review, number one, occupation with Christ means to be focused on Christ as our pattern, our example, and our guide. There are synonyms that we use in Christian language, living for Jesus, following the example of Jesus, thinking like Jesus. In each one of these phrases, the the focal point is on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've all heard lots of Christians make statements about, oh, how I love Jesus. They sing a hymn, oh, how I love Jesus. But do they really? What do they know about Jesus? They have emotions towards Jesus, but do they really know anything about Jesus? Scripture teaches that this comparison is important because it drives us to know who Jesus is. I hear people all the time say, well, this is what Jesus would do. No, it isn't. You just want to pound the radio sometime. You hear somebody say, oh, we have to be more, do, do, do Christian things. Well, they don't have a clue. They have bad theology, which leads to bad uh, in, interpretation of the things that Jesus said. And therefore, they are not even on the right track when it comes to applying the scripture because they don't come at these things from the right direction. So Jesus makes 
uh, several points in this way. In John 13, 34, he said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. Notice that phrase, as I. That's that comparison. He's the example. It's... um, it's not your parents, it's not your friends, it's not your peers, it's not other people at church. Although there are some times when people rise to certain levels and we see a glimpse of what these things mean in their life. This is why Paul could say, follow my example. In effect, what he was saying, follow my example when I'm following Christ's example. He wasn't saying, follow my example when I'm living according to my sin nature. And I've had the privilege to be around and to work with some uh, older men when I was young that truly exemplified a Christ-like character in many ways. They weren't perfect. They were fallen human beings like the rest of us. But it gave you a glimpse of what this Christian life and that relationship, that intimacy with the Lord was all about. In John 15.10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love. That's a phrase for intimate fellowship, that intimate partnership that we have with the Lord Jesus Christ in our spiritual life and spiritual growth. It's not, it doesn't mean salvation. It means that intimacy of spiritual dependence and growth. That if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments. And then John fifteen twelve. this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, what word do you have in all three of those verses other than love and as that's important? It's that word commandment. There are those within Christianity who will say that, oh, you're, you're being very legalistic when you say we have to follow Christ's commandments. You don't understand legalism. We have obligations and responsibilities in life, and observing them and fulfilling them is not legalism. Uh, Putting, uh, judging other people can be about that can be legalistic. Uh, Being uh, uh, using them as sort of a uh, grocery list of things, uh, a checklist of things that we have to do in order to get God's favor—that's legalism. But to do what the Lord said to do is not any more legalistic than it is to do what your parents say to do when you're growing up. It is for our own good to learn to live and to think as God would have us uh, learn and to think. Another verse is John 13:15, where Jesus says, For I have given you an example. He's the example, clearly states it, that you should do as I have done for you. And then in 1 Peter 2.21, Peter says, For to this you were called, this has to do with our obligations and responsibilities, the standards to which we were uh, uh, appointed, uh, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. So all these verses are setting forth a metric for how we can evaluate our love for the Lord. Notice it doesn't say if you love love the Lord, you're going to feel a certain way. You're going to have a certain euphoria. There's there's going to be a a certain uh, uplift every day. Uh, I always remember when I was in my first pastorate, which was really, 
I wish most pastors, young pastors, could go through the kinds of experiences I went through in my first pastorate because I learned a lot of things by negatives. And a lot of times pastors, if they change churches, they will have a bad experience at one point or another, and it's better to have it at the beginning so that you can learn some really important principles than have it come at the at the end. Uh, in fact, I had a professor in seminary used to say, when you men graduate, you need to go out and get yourself a church, and you need to fail. You will learn more from that than you will from any class you ever took in seminary. And there's a lot of truth to that. And I had a man in this church who had a charismatic Pentecostal background. He really wasn't uh, very enthusiastic about the study of God's Word. He wanted his emotions stroked a lot. And I had invited one of my seminary professors, missions professor, by the name of Ron Blue, who was a very very solid man. But Ron Blue had one of these uh, very upbeat, bouncy, energetic personalities. At the end of the message, this individual in my church said, he just has the joy of the Lord. I said, no, he doesn't. He has an, an ebullient personality that has nothing to do with his relationship with the Lord. Don't confuse personality with spirituality. And a lot of people do that. And there are other people who seem rather dour in their uh, the way they live their lives and their expressions in life. That's their personality. That doesn't mean they don't have inner happiness, that they don't have tranquility or contentment in their life. Uh, but personality isn't the same as having the uh, biblical concept of the joy of the Lord. We are to, uh, de- that is developed over time. So occupation with Christ, going back to that point, means to be focused on Christ as our pattern, example, and guide. As trivialized as it has become, it is basically answering the question, what would Jesus do in this situation? Am I emulating Christ-like character in how I'm handling these kinds of situations? Second, to follow Jesus' example, we must learn first about who he is and how he has loved us. That takes time in the Word. And people will jump to passages like the Sermon on the Mount, and they will take a passage like Turn the Other Cheek, and they will uh, yank that out of context without understanding anything about it. And they will make various kinds of applications that are not uh, legitimate because their understanding of the text is not, not legitimate. And so it takes time to learn who Jesus really is and to understand how he loved us. So we have to be careful of all of these errors that are made in following Jesus because the people who are saying them have never really studied the word and thought through what is going on in the passage. They read their own ideas into the text rather than letting the text uh, speak to him. And it's also important because there are dispensational distinctives. When Jesus came along and in his... um, Uh, In his opening message, he was preaching the same message as John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I was reading a story the other day about a man who got saved in the 18th century, and after he was saved, this was his sermon. 
Well, that's not right. Because Jesus was announcing that in a particular context at the beginning of his message, at the beginning of his ministry to the Jewish people because he had come as the uh, Davidic king to offer the kingdom to Israel. But once the Pharisees and Sadducees and other religious leaders rejected his offer, he never used that message again. So this is not a message for today. This was a message that was crafted for when Jesus came uh, at the first advent, at the beginning of those, those three years. So it's not a message for Gentiles in this church age. And you have to understand what the Scripture says and why. Third, we must understand the whole dynamic of the incarnation and the substitutionary death on the cross as the backdrop of love, humility, and biblical unity. How many times have we, as we've gone through Ephesians and Philippians, seen the emphasis on biblical unity? Think the same thing. Have this same mind in you again and again. But how is it exemplified by those biblical authors? It's exemplified by the incarnation, and they will go to the incarnation as an example of God's love for us and Christ's humility that he entered into human history, uh, willingly restricting or limiting his the use of his divine attributes that he might add to himself true humanity for the purpose of submitting to God the Father, obeying him to the point of death. And so it is only through understanding how these events in Christ's life are then used and interpreted by the apostles that we come to really understand uh, what love is, what grace is, what humility is, and what unity is. Too often what happens is people just use those terms and load them, load them with their own opinions of what they are. In Philippians 2.5, Paul has said to the Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is occupation with Christ, to think as Christ thinks, have this mindset, have this mentality, have this way of thinking in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In Psalm 138, too, we saw this in the call to worship, where the psalmist says, for you have magnified your word. That word magnified literally comes from a word meaning to make great or to exalt you have exalted your word above all your name. So when we get to Philippians uh, 2, uh, 9 and 10, it's that, that God the Father exalts the Lord Jesus Christ for his, uh, for his humi- humility, and he has a name above all names. Uh, John 1, 18, we're told no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father has declared him. Now that word declared, it's a, that, that was a choice those translators used. The Greek word will sound familiar to you. It is the word ex agao, where we get our word exegesis. And what it basically means is to tell or describe something uh, 
in great detail. That's what it is. So Jesus is showing us who God is in great detail by the way he interacted with people, by the way he lived his life, by his priorities, uh, by everything that took place in his life. Fourth thing we've seen is that the metric for evaluating our knowledge of Jesus is our obedience to his commandments. But we have to understand which commandments are for us and which commandments are not for us. We have to understand what those commandments mean, and that only comes from from really getting to know uh, know Scripture. Our love for God, our love for Jesus, are not based upon how we feel. So, first of all, we have to actually know what the Scriptures teach about Jesus, about what He taught, His commandments, and then obey them. Second, we need, cannot love Jesus and the world at the same time. It's amazing today. I get these emails from different organizations who are sort of uh, watchdogs on what's going on in Christianity, uh, and they are helpful to one degree or another, but it's, it's amazing how many evangelical, so-called evangelical church churches in America uh, were uh, have this whole month of June have been uh, had their rainbow flags on display, have been uh, preaching messages on diversity and equity and uh, inclusion of every kind of sinful and perverted behavior. Uh, it is to where the the world is, is no different from what's going on inside of many churches. And they have a mentality of absolute permissiveness towards every sort of sexual sin. Scripture is very clear that there are two different ways to look at life. There's God's way and man's way. Man's way is referred to as the thinking of the world. In James 4.4, James writes, Do you not know that friendship with the world that is, the values of the world, the way of thinking of the world, is enmity, that is, antagonism, hostility with God. Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Are they still saved? Sure they are. They've just made themselves, uh, through their sin nature, they've made themselves hostile to God. They've declared war on biblical things. But that doesn't mean they're not saved. There are many people who are saved, and sadly, they go to churches that give them no information about the Bible, so they still think the way they thought before they were saved because nobody ever gave them any good, healthy, spiritual food. John fourteen fifteen, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So there are standards for the Christian life. There are standards for how we are to think, how we are to act, how we are to talk, how we are to live. 
and it is distinct from the from that of the world around us. Now, everyone in this room is at a different place on that scale of being a baby believer to being a mature believer. But even a mature believer sometimes just reverts to their sin nature and that habit pattern, and they'll say things, do things, think things that they shouldn't. And you have baby believers who really haven't been taught enough to uh, know the difference yet. Uh, these are all standards for us, and we are to grow, and spiritual growth takes some time, and it's got to be based on uh, the Word of God. So we've been studying about what the Bible teaches about occupation with Christ, and this really just means to focus upon Him. There are four scriptures that are important. The first is Second Peter 3.18. The second is Hebrews 12, 1 through 4. We have covered those pretty much. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 is the one we'll look at in a little bit. And then Philippians 2, 5 through 11, I'll briefly touch on because we have covered that extensively in the Philippians study on, um, uh, on Thursday night. Second Peter 3.18, the command that we are to grow. Peter is very concerned about spiritual growth. In 1 Peter, he said that we are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that we may grow by it. It is the word of God plus the spirit of God that leads to maturity in the child of God. We can't grow up apart from the word of God in our lives along with the spirit of God. And here at the conclusion of Second Peter, he says, grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So grace refers to grace orientation. Knowledge refers to uh, doctrinal orientation. And that unless we are oriented to the word of God, then we are not going to grow. Jesus prayed to the Father in his high priestly prayer, Father, sanctify them, which is a word related to our spiritual life and spiritual growth. Sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. So that, that's what Peter is saying. It's that we have to know the word of God and be nourished by the word of God. We have to read it. We have to memorize it. We have to reflect upon it. We have to let it sift through our minds. And if you're busy thinking about the things of the Lord and memorizing Scripture, then I'll bet there's a lot of other things that you ought not be thinking about that won't occur to you because your mind is on on the Scriptures. So we grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then last week we looked at Hebrews 12, 1 through 4, and we saw that this is coming out of that long list of uh, great faith heroes in the Old Testament. They are described as a cloud of witnesses. They have given their testimony to the significance of living our lives on the basis of what God's Word says and trusting it, mixing faith with the Word of God. And it is a conclusion, which I pointed out, an unusual word for therefore, which is used only here in the New Testament, but it grabs our attention so that we will pay more close attention to these verses. Uh, That what we are to do is to lay aside every weight, anything that is a distraction, and any sin that we easily give into that is destructive to our spiritual life and spiritual growth. Let us lay aside 
uh, every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And the gra- grammatical construction here indicates that this is a prerequisite to fulfilling the command which is given down towards the last line, let us run with endurance. If we, uh, a lot of times you'll see athletes go out and train and they will wear weighted vests. They don't wear those weighted vests when they run a marathon. They run the weighted, they wear them when they're training. But we don't wear sin in training. We need to get rid of it in order to grow spiritually. Now, this involves two things. First is that we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit, acknowledge our sins uh, to the Father, and instantly we're forgiven of those sins and graciously cleansed of all unrighteousness. But what happens next is sometimes we sin again within just seconds. That's true of many baby believers. Just thinks how many times, if you've been around a baby, how many times they dirty their diapers. But eventually self-control comes into the picture, and uh, there aren't so many of those problems. That's spiritual growth, and it just takes time. And God understands and is gracious to us. He is not permissive in that. When I say understands, I'm not saying he is being uh, permissive, but he deals with us, us in grace. James uses the same verb, saying, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and the excess which wickedness is. In other words, he is saying the same thing. He says we, we're supposed to deal with the sin in our life, um, and not give in to it every time. Now, some people have a problem with that. Uh, you take a diet, for example. As soon as some people decide they're going to go on a diet, all they can think about is everything they ought not eat, and they succumb to it over and over again, and then they no, no diet ever works for me. Um, but we have to make certain decisions in life that we're not going to indulge our sin nature. And we understand that. But it, all that comes as a result of spiritual growth, and it doesn't happen overnight. Now, it may ha- you may know somebody where certain things did happen overnight, but those are usually not the norm. It takes time. So we have to lay aside these weights so that we can run with endurance the race. That is, Paul here is using the metaphor of a race to describe our, our spiritual life. But how do we do this? We do this, in verse 2, by looking unto Jesus. So this is telling us, well, how, how am I able to lay aside the, the weight? How am I able to set aside the sin that I just always give into? How do I do that? Well, reorient the focal point of your thinking. That's this word here, looking unto Jesus. It is a word that indicates directing your attention, fixing the eyes of your soul, your concentration upon Jesus, so that you are occupied with him and not with the lust patterns or fulfilling the lust patterns of your sin nature. And the example is Christ. He was tempted or tested in every area as we are, yet without sin. Now, a lot of people say, well, he was God, so that's why he didn't sin. Well, that would have been, would have blown the whole thing with Jesus' incarnation. He had to handle sin without relying upon his divine attributes. We've studied that on, on Thursday night with the kenosis passage. 
He uses his divine attributes to demonstrate that he is God, but he doesn't use his divine attributes to deal with temptation. He has to solve that the same way we would, the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He's setting an example for us. Now, it's not much of an example if he solved his sin problems by always relying on his deity. We don't have deity to rely on. You know, we can't say, okay, I'll just plug in, you know, that part of my personality, and now I'm not going to have a problem. So Jesus had to solve all the tests by relying upon the Word of God and the Spirit of God, just as we do. So Jesus is, uh, it's described here that he runs that race uh, with endurance. So he is, uh, for the joy that is set before him, he endured the cross. Did you see that word? Joy. So we're talking about occupation with Christ, and what's involved here is joy. See, these work together. There is an end game. Uh, Often, if you're going to go on a diet, you have to get a good understanding of what your goals are and that you have to get get focused on those goals because if you don't, you're just going to fail every time. If you're going to succeed in school and you want to have good grades, then you have to be able to focus on the end game And in the process, you're going to make decisions to not do a lot of things and uh, that would get in the way of good grades, and you are going to focus on spending more time studying, more time uh, learning the content so that you can do well uh, well in school. So it's always this process of, of saying no to certain things so that we can focus on what the end objective is, and Jesus is focusing on the fact that he is going to bring uh, billions of people to salvation because of his work on the cross. And so as a result of that, he was able to deal with the shame of a criminal's death, and the consequence of that was that God would exalt him, and he is seated at now at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, now we, um, this, this phrase that I talked about last time, he's the author or the originator of our faith because he is the one who paid the price for our sins on the cross. And he's the finisher of our faith. And that's a word that a lot of people may not quite grasp, but it's the same root word that is used twice in John 19, 28 and, and uh, 30. Uh, John writes, Jesus knew that his mission was now finished. It is a form of the verb that indicates completed action in the past. So before Jesus died physically, his work of salvation was com- already completed on the cross. And so the New King James translates it, it was finished, it was completed, it was, it was uh, paid in full. But they use that word, it was finished. Then he quotes Jesus in verse 30. After Jesus had tasted the vinegar, he said, it is finished. Same form of the verb. It is completed. It was done before he died physically. So Jesus is referred to by the writer of Hebrews as the originator and the finisher. In all three passages, the King James, a New King James translated it with the same English word showing that the, it's the same Greek word. They don't always do that. 
but that shows that they're tied together. Jesus finished or completed our salvation on the cross so that nothing can be added to it. And it was because of the joy that was set before him. This leads us to other passages that Jesus had talked about. In John fifteen eleven. he told the disciples, these things I have spoken to you. In other words, the teaching of the word of God is so that if we apply it, our joy will be made complete. He said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and your joy may be full. Romans fifteen thirteen says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Notice you have the walking by the Spirit in that last phrase, the power of the Spirit. You have the concept of hope, which is a personal sense of our eternal destiny, confidence in where God is taking us. And then that is connected with joy and peace. The point I'm making is it ties these things together for us. They're not just one thing and then the next thing. They're all blended uh, blended together. Now, what the world tells us, what the cosmic system tells us, is that if we really want to have contentment and stability and joy in life, then we have to have certain things. And if we don't have those material things, if we don't have people who affirm us in certain ways, if people aren't validating our sinful carnal lifestyle in certain ways, then we can't have joy and we can't have contentment. So the sin nature basically says, if I just had a little more, if I had their approval, if I had, if I didn't have people telling me I shouldn't have these sinful feelings, then I could be content. That's the voice of your sin nature. And one of the lessons we have to learn early in our spiritual life is that um, we have to understand that if I am not satisfied with what I have, then when I have it, I still won't be satisfied. Because satisfaction doesn't come with what we have. Satisfaction doesn't come from people responding to us in a certain way. Often I will have a pastor tell me, and this is I've learned this from experience, that will talk to me about some problem that they have in their congregation. By problem, I mean a problem person. And I said, you know, the interesting thing is we can, we can do something or we can teach something and we will have 10,000 people tell us that was outstanding. But one person will go, hmm, and that's the only thing we think about is that one person who just didn't respond the way we thought they ought to. Well, we're putting our, our stability, our happiness, our contentment on, on what people think. And that's enslaving ourselves to the opinions of others. So we have to learn to walk before the Lord, occupied with the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5.22 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and joy. We can't manufacture this on our own. It's produced by our walk uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the last few minutes, I want to go back to this concept that is familiar to most of you, that the way the word saved is used in the Bible 
has three senses to it. One writer has said the three tenses of salvation. Others call it the three phases or three stages of salvation. Stage one takes place in a nanosecond. The instant you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God imputes to you the righteousness of Jesus Christ and declares you justified. At that instant, you are made a new creature in Christ. You are born again, and all things become new. It just takes place in an instant. That is positional sanctification or that we are saved from the penalty of sin. Another way the word saved or delivered is used in Scripture has to do with our progressive spiritual growth. And this is being saved from the power of sin. So this is what we describe as stage two salvation. We are growing, we are justified, but now we are working out our salvation. We are living it out, we are growing in our spiritual life. And phase three is when we are saved from the presence of sin. The instant we die, we lose that old sin nature, and we are absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. That is ultimate sanctification. Now, the passage we're about to look at, or two, actually two passages, have to do with the spiritual life, being saved from uh, the tri- uh, trials and tests in our spiritual life in the sense that we're saved from the power of sin. We're not going to yield or solve the problems in life uh, on the basis of our sin nature, but we're going to solve the problems on the basis of what God has provided for us. In Galatians 2.20, Paul uses a slightly different phraseology for talking about occupation with Christ. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. That refers to the baptism by the Holy Spirit when at the instant of faith in Christ, we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection and entered into the body of Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in this mortal body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That relates to our focus. I'm living on the basis of who Christ is and focusing upon him. Now, the third verse I had in my list is 1 Peter 1, 7 through 9. Now, this is an important passage. There's a lot of things to talk about here, but I only want to point out one thing. In 1 Peter 1, 8, he refers to Jesus Christ, and he says about Jesus Christ, having not seen, we love. We haven't seen Jesus Christ. We haven't touched him. We haven't um, lived in his presence and Jesus told, told Thomas, remember Thomas is the one that doubted that he was risen from the dead. And then when Jesus showed up, Jesus says, okay, put up or shut up. You can touch the wounds and you can see that I'm, I'm alive. And Peter said, no, no, I don't need that. And so Jesus said, blessed are you, Thomas, but blessed are those who believe without seeing. When we understand who Jesus is, we learn it. It is mental. It is intellectual. Now, a lot of people don't like that because they think, that oh, that just makes it cold. I want to have those warm, fuzzy feelings. Well, that's nice, but that's not the core of it. The core of it is how we think about Christ. 
and and thought is important. We have to know who he is. We have to understand the scriptures. That's why scripture doesn't say have the emotions of Christ. It says have the mind of Christ. Again and again and again. It's think about this this way. So what we see here is this reference to our being tested by fire in verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Now, what's interesting here is when we look at verse seven, that, that verse, the word for testing and the word for um, tested are forms of the same root, dokimazo. And that's what it doesn't mean the genuineness of the faith. It means the testing of your faith. And so James, in James 1, 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various tests, because you know that the testing of your faith, that's that same word that Peter uses, the testing of your faith produces endurance. So how are you able to handle the test, the adversity, the difficulty? Well, in 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 8, let me go back uh, a couple more slides there. 1 8, he says, you do it through Jesus, your occupation with Christ. He says, um, whom having not seen you love. It is our love for the Lord Jesus Christ that motivates us to choose option A instead of sinful option B to handle the tests of life. We want to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to obey him. And so having not seen him, we love him. How do you get, grow to love the Lord? It's not experiential other than your experience with the word of God. That's the only way we get to know Jesus. We don't do it through mysticism. We don't do it for having some kind of personal encounter. We do it because we have studied the word of God and we believe what it says and we act on those truths. So 1 Peter 1.8, he says, Having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet by believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of joy. Notice how occupation with Christ is again connected with joy. Now, logically, it's the occupation with Christ that's first and the joy that follows. That's why I have it as the last in my, in my organization. Okay, so in this passage, we are reminded of what Jesus said. If we love him, we will keep his commandments. And the result is what? We receive the end result of our faith. That's what that word means. End result of your faith, the deliverance of your souls. You're delivered in the midst of the test. You're delivered. It's phase two. It is being saved from the present power of sin in our life. So when we are faced with tests, we have the option of getting angry or relaxing and trusting God. We choose option B because that is going to uh, enable us to glorify the Lord by obeying his commandments. So occupation with Christ, therefore, involves this mental focus on the Lord. So when we think about what is occupation with Christ, it is living to serve the Lord. It is living to please the Lord Jesus Christ so that when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we will hear him say, 
well done, good and faithful servant. Occupation with Christ is to learn to think about life and the world as Jesus thinks about life and the world. And the only way to get that way is to study God's word. We are not to be conformed to the world, Romans 12, 2 says, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our emotions. I just wanted to see if anybody was still awake. By the renewing of our mind. It's amazing how many of us, because we live in a culture that for the last 150 years has been brainwashed into thinking emotions are the criteria of life. We live in a culture that has affected all of us so that we think how we feel is really important. But, but the Bible says it's how you think, and that's the criteria. We're not always going to feel good. We're going to wake up a little down some days. We're going to be coming off of COVID or some other disease, and we're going to feel down and no energy or whatever. But we don't live on the basis of our emotions. We ba- we live on the basis of the reality of life as God describes it. And our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he was exalted by God to his right hand. Let's close in prayer with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that that eternal truth is reality. It, it tells us what reality is. You define reality. You created reality. Reality has been flawed and distorted because of sin. But you provided the solution at the cross where Christ paid the penalty for, for sin, and you provide the solution for us in your word, to learn how all these skills fit together. And so, Father, we pray that you might challenge each one here that we might think more conscientiously about how to face these these adversities we face. Some of the adversities are internal. There are people who struggle mightily be with depression or various other negative emotions, and that they need to learn to function in terms of how they think, not how they feel. And as your word is applied through the God, the Holy Spirit, then there is a transformation that will slowly take place over time. Now, Father, we pray that as we uh, wrap up, that anyone who's here that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, anyone who's listening, who's just had questions about their own salvation, their own eternal destiny, that we might be reminded of the promises of Scripture, that you have sent your Son to die on the cross for us, and that our salvation is not based on how we feel. Our salvation is not based on what we do. Our salvation is based on what Christ did on the cross, and that your justice was satisfied, so that if we trust in Christ as our Savior on his death on our behalf, then you will declare us just and righteous, and that we will be given everlasting life that can never be taken from us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.